In the marketing communications landscape, commercial sponsorships are often viewed as somewhere between invaluable marketing tools and a chairman's whim. Fortunately, this is beginning to change, with sponsorships maturing from mere bit players to playing genuine and major roles in delivering commercial returns and benefits. But how do we know when it's done correctly and efficiently? Salesandmedia.com decided to ask some experts and try and find out what really makes sponsorships commercial. Hi, this is Paul Gardner, and today I'm talking to Caroline Ruddick, who is the General Manager of Marketing for Latitude Financial. Although we're not talking about Latitude Financial, are we, Caroline? No, not today we're not. You've had a lot of experience um, around the world with sponsorships. Obviously, you've worked in, in New York, you've worked in Australia, a number of companies, a number of industries. Yes. But Latitude is one company that does not actually have a lot of sponsorships. Why, why is that? Interesting question. So with Latitude uh, Financial, their focus previously had been on having a house of brands and had always been kept very separate. And for that very reason, uh, there was it was not financially worth doing a major investment for a smaller portfolio of products. So now as the business is bringing together all of the products to be under one brand. It may be something that's reconsidered in the future, but certainly hasn't been part of the playbook until now. And was it part of the playbook when it was GE Money, which was the original name for Latitude Financial, or is it something that's just you've decided as part of the marketing mix there are other alternatives? Good question. So under GE, yes, there absolutely were sponsorships. Um, That was pre my time. So I joined after Latitude had already been born and, and the company had extracted out of the GE business. And what, what year was that? So I joined in 2017 and it was late 2016 that Latitude was established as a brand and during 2016 that the business that had been previously within GE had been bought by a group of uh, private equity investors. So globally, GE had been selling off their money business. So 2016 was when that separation occurred. And so a lot of the focus of investment in the business was putting all the systems in to run separately out of a global juggernaut. So there probably wasn't the bandwidth or the dollars at that stage. And then a lot of the opportunity was to invest in, you know, direct consumer acquisition and prioritising very direct to market um, investment. Caroline, you're obviously a very experienced marketer. Just for the benefit, for before we get into actual sponsorships per se, tell me about what, what attracted you to Latitude from a marketing perspective as a brand new brand? I thought it was just an amazing opportunity to help shape a brand and help an organisation grow. I, I love um, being part of creating something out of nothing. So so when something is new, there's there's not really established patterns, there's not established strategies. I just find it incredibly exciting to deal with the world of ambiguity and create certainty and uh, put plans in place to drive growth. I think that's been a common denominator through all of my career choices. Now, you obviously worked a lot overseas. I mean, can you see market differences in the marketing between Australia and, say, New York, where you worked for so long? Absolutely. And even between Australia and New Zealand. So, so most of my career has oh, been okay. across Australia and, and New Zealand, but particularly um, with the US and in New York, you know, budgets are on a whole other scale um, strategies. So, so when I was in New York, I was fortunate to be working on the Procter & Gamble business and it was uh, agency side that I was on. And in Australia, I'd started my career client side with Procter & Gamble. And looking at the way 
and the complexity of the marketing in the US because they're driven by the 52 states that all have their own media networks and media landscapes and sponsorship opportunities within state. There's very localised cultures across the states as well where some things might be appropriate for part of the US and not appropriate in the others. So you're really dealing with business on a whole new scale and, you know, with a company like uh, Procter & Gamble, it was fascinating you know, they had teams, uh, almost two brand and marketing teams within the same brand because some of the product development that needed to happen to deliver took so long to drop that you were actually working on brand and investment strategies 10 years out. So what's the consumer going to want in 10 years versus the team that was working in the two-year time frame of, okay, we have this product, now we're going to deliver How do we create that emotional engagement, that affinity and the lead to market? So, you know, when you were looking at any of the brand strategies and sponsorship elements, the short-term team looked at it, but they also then had to keep in mind, where are we traveling in that next sort of 10-year horizon of what we're developing? Are you telling me they're doing 10-year horizons for Pantene shampoo somewhere in New York as we speak? Very, very likely, yes. Absolutely, (laughs) they are. Let's talk about New York just for a second because it intrigues me. Obviously, we're in the middle of a a coronavirus, COVID-19. If you were the person right now and you're in New York stuck in um, a a small little bed, sit somewhere in Manhattan and everyone's allowed to move out, what would you be saying to clients? Would you be saying to clients it's the best time to invest and and market and move or would you say keep your money and and keep your ammo dry until the better days return? Oh, look, that is an absolute pearl of a question and you know it's it's a really interesting one Paul so my personal opinion not necessarily shared by um by all executives that sit around the table anything that I've read and seen and some of this drawn from experience from the GFC is media is now incredibly cost effective so you get so much more bang for your buck every piece of evidence that has been captured through recessional times and there's a a few studies on this from global organizations where they've actually ranked every single sort of recession over the last hundred years and looked at the organizations that invested through versus did not and there's one particular stat around S&P 200 in the US and how that has performed versus the market at large Every organisation that invested through a recession and kept a presence grew faster in the years afterwards and it took four to five years for the brands that didn't invest during that time to recover. So, I wonder whether that's the case with whether you have something like um, a pandemic where there's a chance you're going to die as opposed to a recession where unemployment's up and inflation's up. I mean, for, for me, I remember when planes went through the buildings, 9-11. Yes. Uh, the biggest question we had in mind was, do we really want to run a brand where you cut from the, the ads back to these people dying and buildings falling over. Is that really going to do something for our own brand? I mean, how do you reconcile that with the footage they're seeing in between the ads? Yeah, so I think there is there's a difference between being present at that moment and being respectful. And I think a, a really interesting thing that I'm seeing out of the New Zealand market at the moment is brands that are instead of using the media they've paid for to put their business message to put messages of thanks, to put messages of support out. So they're changing what they're talking about, but they're still present. They're present being supportive of the community and and those that are suffering. So I think that's probably the tack that I believe is a smarter one to take versus withdrawing 
completely. You know, there are also really good reasons for some organisations to withdraw marketing completely and focus on their own customers. What about the other part that intrigues me then is, given the fact that we're now looking at a lot of news, would you, if, if media is cheaper now, would you want to be on the news channels or do you want to be on still with Married at First Sight and The Bachelor? I think there's a balance of both and it depends very much on the type of organisation you are. So if you're in a retail environment where you're selling goods, so so take a Harvey Norman. If you are selling goods that are going to help people in the here and now, so they're looking for furniture, equipment, their TV died and they need things for their home to help them get through now, then you want to be where people are spending their time and thinking about it, which is probably in your married at first sight. It's completely contextual and the right place to be where they may be thinking about it and and thinking about what they need to do. From a news point of view, if there are things you're doing to support people, so for example, you may be a health insurance fund and people are worried about their health insurance, they're worried about the cost of it going up and what if I get sick. In those news channels, it might be right to have some type of message that talks to the we're here to help you at the moment. We understand that you're concerned. We have programs to help you financially to make it through and ensure you're still covered. So, so, so that is how I'd play the different, the different organisations in the different contexts. So you know, t- take your example of the, the actual health insurance. I mean, there are ads on at the moment that say we'll waive the waiting period and if you're laid off, we'll pick up the tab for six months. And So that's, that's not just a brand awareness. That's an awareness of the situation. And, That's and correct. Created a product to actually make it work in that situation, right? Absolutely. To completely help and support them. So it's a product focused message that reaches people in a time where they need that help. So it's completely contextually relevant for them. Caroline, we're talking about sponsorships, obviously, primarily. In all the roles we've had here in New Zealand and New York, I mean, how important were sponsorships to the way you did business in marketing? Yeah, so there's some places it's been really important. So um, it was a major part of of my role both in Seek and with AGL. And uh, with Seek, it played a crucial role because at the time I was in Seek, we were looking at growing awareness and convincing people that they wanted to be online. So you know, this was some somewhat where digital organisations and operating online and looking for jobs online was in its infancy. So we were trying to grow the preference for people to use an online job source versus buying newspapers. The rivers of gold time it was. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, sponsorship to create awareness was really important. So who were the target groups we needed to convince and switch to come online? So those that weren't born as digital natives, but you needed to grow that affinity engagement with. And sponsorship was a terrific tool where you could reach an audience where uh, they would notice you, you'd stand out and they'd say, oh, well, that must be a brand for me because they affiliate with and believe in the same type of things that I love. And so if I'm seeing them there, they must be a good organisation and I want to find out a little more. So you're almost in that priming and very targeted sense of reaching the exact audience you want. In that particular case, was the primary audience the employers or the potential employees? It was job seekers. So um, we didn't have... The job seekers built up a body of of, um, job seekers, which in turn encouraged job employers to advertise, right? Yes. And look, with every sponsorship we did, we made sure we were also reaching the advertisers, but the primary audience was the job seeker because what got the advertisers in with the Seek model was making sure you had the job seeker numbers there and the audiences they were after. How did you break that up across 
the various verticals, whether did you do mainly arts or sport or entertainment or you sort of threw everything against the wall and hope it stuck? I mean, how did you find what was the best sponsorships? How did you work that out? What we did was we looked at the audiences where we wanted to really grow penetration with and that were audiences that, that our advertisers wanted to reach as well and looked for particular sponsorship properties that met those demographics and and had a really you know really good relationship with a range of different organizations that represented those properties so we could give them a brief and say this is what we're looking for and we're also really fortunate because um companies would see seek out spending and and we had a strategy of having very bold and cut through creative and a lot of people would come because they wanted to have that brand and the cut through and the noticeability and say, look, companies like Seeker Investing, we'd like you to as well. So uh, a lot of people approached us to, to make sure that we got on their books. So when did sponsorship become part of the marketing mix in, in the situations you've had in your career? I mean, is, is it the thing you add on the end? Is it something that's at the very beginning when you start looking at the whole marketing mix? Or is it something you have when you've, oh, we've got a bit of budget left over, why don't we sponsor something? How, how, where, where does it fit in the whole marketing mix? Yes, so the organisations where where the organisation has had a philosophy that supports it, it has always been a key part of the mix. And, you know, even at my time at NYAB, there, there were really strong sponsorships involved, but it wasn't necessarily the end consumer. You know, it was one of the um, B2B to C type models with NYAB where you had a strong network of B2B who became referrers to the B2C and B2C element we probably didn't invest as much around sponsorship because we had direct media acquisition channels that we could leverage as well as then the referrer network so you know it was a key part of certain target audience groups and supporting what was ultimately the referral network so you pick them according to where the audience is going to be so you fish where the fish are yes what 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 do you look for in terms of return for a sponsorship is it, is it mainly just awareness or what what are the key elements for you Yes. So again, it depended on the the strategic mission of the sponsorship. So if I think about my time at AGL, we actually had three different pillars of sponsorship. So we had one that was around awareness. We had one that was around strategic brand equity building. So building relationships we could then leverage. And then we had some that was specifically around that B2B element where we found that there were really important networks that we wanted to sponsor. So it allowed our salespeople the relationship opportunity to build relationships with people that we could then build strategic alliances to grow the business. So um, with each of those particular strategic verticals, there was a very different strategy as to what we chose to sponsor and how much we invested and the ROI. So if I take, for example, something where we're looking from a consumer point of view around driving awareness and building that affinity and engagement. Um, I've always looked for a return of a minimum of two and a half times the sponsorship investment in terms of reach and awareness and return on investment value. Not necessarily sales. No. So with the, with the B2B, there often was sales, ultimate sales that, that we would return on. But have I actually got three and a half times the value return of spending that money that I would have in using a different media channel. So I'm the chairman of your company. I come to you and I say, listen, you're the marketing director. My my partner loves the ballet. I'd like to sponsor the ballet. 
what, what, what do you, what, apart, apart from not looking to it immediately, sir, what, 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 actually, what actually do you really say, sir, as a marketing person whose budget is probably getting cut by COVID-19 as we speak? Uh, so in most organisations I've worked in, there has always been the special fund, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the special fund, which um, you could call the Keep My Career Fund. Um, <laughs> um, no, it's funny one, and, and I won't share which company this was in, but one so of the... We've got a few to choose. We've got yeah, 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 yeah. B&G and MYOB, so I'll have a good One of the CEOs was terrific. He, um, he came in and he said, listen, Caroline, it's really good for our business to sponsor this particular area. So I'm going to pay for it out of my fund, but I need you guys to manage it. So he realised he needed to do it, but he wasn't going to penalise us by taking it out of the budget that allowed us to return our KPIs. And I thought that was such a strong EQ and IQ way to manage it. In other organisations, you know, um, yeah, there is an expectation and and when you have, have you know, your boss change three or four times in your time in an organisation and they each like a different footy club, you become really schizophrenic and it doesn't help with the <laughs> consumer, right? <laughs> hey, let's talk about football for a moment because I had an interesting conversation with somebody who's a major sponsor of, a, of the AFL. Yes. And with all the football, at least off temporarily, perhaps for the year, who knows, uh, he said to me that he wasn't sure that that represented the kind of value he wanted anymore because his brand is already well known. Why do I need my brand on the ball or on the ground or where it happens to be when it's so well known? How would you respond to him if you were the AFL? So, so I want to actually say to him, on what um, what time frame are you looking to measure success on the sponsorship? So, you know, if you feel you're well known, that's terrific, but what is it you're well known for? And if you remove from that sponsorship, you know, what do you think you're losing? And if his answer is I lose nothing, then I would be responding with, well, here's some things that we believe you could be losing and would really like you to consider. And I'd be coming to the table with all the modelling that proves that emotional engagement factor with the fan. So while they might be aware of you, the fact that they see your brand on the ground, you know, and I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark, you know, the ones I've seen over the years, it's, you know, I've seen CUB on the ground, I've seen Toyota on the ground, I've seen Coke on the ground, right? So when a consumer sees that brand on the ground and they've made that choice to buy your product or they're loyal to your product, they have a pride every time they see it and they feel really good that you're doing it. So the next time they choose a beer or a soft drink or a car, they're going to go, you know what? I really feel good about Toyota and, and I've enjoyed driving it and they believe in the things I do, so, so I'm going to keep going with it. But if another another brand ends up being there and Toyota's replaced by Kia or Solo's replaced by Coke or Lion Nathan starts doing the job of, you know, the job of what CUB was doing, you know, they start to feel an affinity because they're seeing that brand every week and they go, oh, you know, maybe I'll try these other guys now. So, so that's what you put at risk that you may have someone that's loyal, and yes, they've heard of you. Um, you ask anybody with the banks, what four banks have you heard of? They can name all of them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have that affinity and that it continues. So you really need to understand the long-term implications that you have from withdrawing from something where your loyal customers have an affinity and an emotional engagement and a pride when they see your brand there because that's the brand they choose. So if you look at something like MasterChef, for instance, sponsoring MasterChef is um, Coles, I believe. Yes. Um, if Coles, probably one of the reasons Coles is there is they feel as though if they left, Woolworths would go there. I mean, is, is that a good enough reason to stay? 
Sometimes it is, in my opinion. However, if you're just there and you're not leveraging it and making the most of it, you're wasting your money. So if you're choosing to be there because you want to keep someone else out, and there are plenty of companies I've worked for where the brief is don't let go of that because someone else is going to get into it and we don't want them to, if you're not creating the value with your consumer and investing in the leverage of it, then that investment's worthless anyway. Caroline, you look at the sporting goods companies for a moment and look at the amount of money that Nike, I guess, would have poured into the Tokyo Olympics. Now, that's yes. now been canned for a year. Or if you, if you read yes. the, uh, the chief medical officer's opinion of Tokyo, maybe canned forever. Yes. I mean, what, what do you do with that money now? Now, Nike was obviously all about look at the ambassadors, look at the winners that wear Nike, we're associated with Michael Jordans and whoever the new Michael Johnsons and the new stars are, Usain Bolts. What would you do with the money? They'd suddenly come back and say, we're not spending the money. Do you, how, do you, how do you make up for something like the Olympics? So this is if I'm sitting in Nike? You're, you're, yeah, you're Mrs. Nike, Mrs. Mrs. Marketing. Nike, okay, Mrs. Nike. Um, I'm sitting there creating a forum. Where in the world is going to be the safest place to take athletes? And how am I going to create the world's best and most amazing content to tell the story of the athletes preparing for it, of preparing grounds, investing the money in stadiums and competition to run some type of program that allows me a forum to showcase those athletes and to showcase our dedication as an organisation supporting the cause of athletes and how they can still compete um, and building all the proof points myself. So we just about the Olympics. What, what what do you consider for, from a marketing person so widely experienced as you are across so many different companies and, and regions? What, tell me, tell me a couple of things you'd love to sponsor. If someone said, Caroline, you can sponsor anything you like. Is it the Olympics? Is it the Biennale? I mean, what, what's the kind of thing that you think is really a great sponsorship vehicle for clients? So for me, I think it depends entirely on what category you play in as to which one you pick. So if I was – give me a category that I'm in and I'll tell you what I'd pick. Sport. Okay, so for sport and what type of organisation would I be in that I'd choose sport? You know, for me, I think getting in and doing the grassroots sponsorship through to the mature sponsorship is the type of opportunity I'd be looking for. So how do I create value that every single week the mum, the dad, the child is seeing that my brand is there helping them support and achieve. And so finding the opportunities and where the vacancies are to own that whole grassroots through to the mature level of professional competition. You know, and the professional competition is probably going to cost you the most from a licensing agreement point of view and leverage point of view. Interestingly, the grassroots may not cost you as much but you're going to want to leverage it so you're probably going to want a higher ratio of leverage to licensing rights and make sure you have enough budget to span that end to end so you own that continual growth and loyalty right through from when someone's young to when when they're in the professional leagues um, sponsorship. So we talked about we'll just stay with sport for a moment we talked about the concept of established brands uh, using their sponsorships to reinforce the attributes that their customers found when they first purchased it or continue to purchase, right? Yes. But but for something new, like an AFLW, like the Women's League, which is really untested and without yes. real numbers, I mean, you're, you're kind of in there because you think, well, this is the right thing to do. It's, it's more of a test than actual, I know what I'm going to get from it. Absolutely. But you pick that sport or you pick AFL 
W if you have a brand and a product that has a high inf- high affinity with women and girls. So you're buying that sport because you believe in the consumer and the linkage of the consumer and you want to create a new equity for you and that sport together with the consumer because you have the biggest advantage to help shape it and to help shape the direction of, of that competition by investing it at the ground level when there is nothing yet to prove or nothing to measure. I'm talking to Caroline Ruddick, who's the General Manager of Marketing for Latitude Financial. Caroline, it's been fascinating and, and uh, congratulations on a wonderful career across all those businesses, Seek and AGL, Procter & Gamble, Latitude, MYOB, and, and of course in America here in New Zealand. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure, Paul. It's been lovely to chat with you.